He was born into a Jewish family. Somehow, he found his way to Christianity. Along the way, he was going to be a writer, wrote what he believed, what he hoped would be a best-selling novel. But God had other plans. His name is Clifford Goldstein. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is Our Conversation. Clifford, thanks so much for being sure. here. Glad Appreciate be it a lot. Let's go back to the beginning. I'm going to ask you it this way. What do you remember about your childhood being raised in a, in a, in a sort of a Jewish context? Well, it was very secular context. I often joke, I say the way we kept the holidays was like, they try to kill us, they failed, let's eat. Right. You know, that kind of a thing. So very, I mean, they sent me to Hebrew school, it lasted one day. Lasted one day. I ran away from Hebrew school, went under the bridge and smoked a few cigarettes, you know, and that was the beginning and end of my Hebrew education. But I was still very much Jewish, very much aware I'm Jewish, Jewish culture. It's just, it never entered my mind that I was anything other than Jewish, even though I I knew almost nothing about the Bible or the, the background or anything. Yeah. Very secular. But tell me about your family. Well, my family, you know, as far as I know, they're Jewish you know, all the way back. You know, of course, I don't know on after the war, probably almost all of them were. There's a room at the Holocaust Museum in um, Washington, D.C. to a city of Kovno that got completely wiped out. And that was where my mother's side came from, Oh, from there. But my father had been raised in a pretty religious home. And then, you know, he was a soldier in World War II and just sort of where was God and the Holocaust, that kind of thing. And my mother, very secular, I often joke later, my mother was a backslidden Unitarian. (laughs) What in the world would that look like? Yeah, yeah, just very... My mother actually had a spiritual side, but she, you know, we just... Religion really wasn't part of our... I mean, we were culturally Jews... But I can't remember ever sitting down and us ever having a serious or any kind of in-depth conversation about, is there a God? Yeah. You know, my father was always very tolerant. If somebody wants to believe, let them believe, you know, but he, but I, I really, I don't have any memory of, in my family, of any kind of sit down and and what, what and talk about it though I do remember we were very literate a lot of books and I still remember there was a new there was a bible oh, there old was. and new testament yeah. just sitting on the shelf and I can remember I was maybe 14 or 15 and just picking up the new testament I mean it was rare for me just to pick up a bible it was the old and new testament and what I distinctly remember is going to the book of revelation and reading the last few verses of the last chapter. But truly, it it meant nothing to mm, me. Mm, mm. Old Testament, New Testament, it it all meant n- nothing to me in terms of how, how I le- lived, or at least consciously, anyway. You, you said there were a lot of books around the home. Yeah. So what kind of books? Oh, my goodness. Just lots. Well, you know, I have an uncle who's a writer, had been a well-known writer. My grandfather had been an editor. 
So lots of novels. Mm, and I read mm-hmm. a lot of novels and history books. And I can still remember some of these. No- there was one author named Thomas Wolfe. Sure. Tom, not, not the contemporary Tom Wolfe of the electric Kool-Aid acid test you might be thinking of. But there was one who lived in the third 20s and 30s. Thomas Wolfe, book novels called You Can't Go Home Again and Look Homeward Angels. Big, big thick novels about loneliness and whatever. And I can remember as a child reading those novels and loving them. And that was kind of the stuff that spurred on me that I wanted to be a novelist. So how early was this? Did you catch the writing bug? Oh, uh, quite young. I mean, I, yeah, I was always good in English. I was never a particularly great student school. I never really applied myself that hard, but I did like English. And I got, you know, honors English. And I used to write stuff. And sometimes the teachers used to accuse me of having plagiarized, you know, because they just thought they didn't think I could do that. You know, so I and and again, I had an uncle who was a writer, a very well-known avant-garde writer, you know, experimental fiction and so forth. And my grandfather was an editor. So it was however it works. It was in the in the genes. And then yet I. And then I, I was a creative writing major in college. Where'd you go to college? University of Florida, mm. Gainesville. And, and even though I was creative writing, and then it was there, I decided I was going to write a novel. And I started a novel my senior year at college, okay, and just started it. And, and that book consumed me. That was, you know, I poured everything into the novel. Nothing else mattered. I used to tell people, in, well, I asked my uncle once, the writer, you know, about how am I going to survive? And he says, look, if I knew how you could write and live, you know, he says, I'd bottle it and we'd both get rich, okay? Because, mm. you know, he struggled years yeah. too yeah. surviving. But in some ways I would tell people the novel impacted my life, controlled my life more than I controlled what was going with the characters in it because uh-huh. nothing else met. Everything was subservient to writing the book because I had to pour everything into it. It, it. It's tough to be a successful writer. I mean, no matter who. I was reading the other day about a woman whose name I don't recall. Yeah. She was in the Midwest, moved to New York City, hoping she, she'd get there. She said more than 100 rejection letters yeah. for work that she'd sent yeah. here and there and there. And well, here. see, it depends to how you define successful. Right, if you need sure. earning. I mean, there are some brilliant, incredibly successful writers in the sense they produce incredibly well done writing, you know, and, 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 and every level you'd say successful. They just don't sell. Sure. sure. I mean, all you got to do is look at the bestseller list, like the New York Times bestseller list, and really it's a lot of junk. Yeah. yeah it really yeah. is Daniel, well, not anymore, Daniel Steele or Dean Koontz, just this. You know, and and every now and then, every now and then there'll be one of these rare ones that's a literary tour de force, and yet at the same time sells. Sure. Okay, it, and it's very rare. Though. You you find the authors that that that, that uh, find the groove, start churning out a production line. There may be this, this schmaltzy sort of oh yeah, they, they sell. Genre. Oh, they sell yeah. and sell and sell and yeah, sell. Yeah, yeah. I don't really read any of that stuff, and but uh, oh yeah, yeah. It's tough because there's. You look back at the history of writing the novels that the greatest writers, yeah. people who are now considered the great writers, most of them 
many, many, like somebody like the Southern writer, William Faulkner, you know, who's now like a god in college and on yep. the South, all we ever read was Faulkner. And for decades, the man starved. Sure. The man starved and struggled. And yeah, so it's interesting too. My daughter was, was, was doing a, uh, some class where she got to read a bunch of books and, and one was an African-American female author and I wish I could remember her name, but, but I cannot. And the, the novel. Toni Morrison? No, no, no. She's far less well known oh, than Toni okay. Morrison. The, the novel never really made it. In fact, the novel was criticized. The, the, the book, novel, I think it was a novel. The book languished. And then it was discovered, and now suddenly it's this yeah. masterpiece. Yeah, oh yeah. Kind of interesting oh, yeah. how... See, doesn't it tell you too how authors, just like artists, you kind of got to get in good with the right people. You, yeah. Someone's got to like you and promote you. Well, there's a certain amount of, I don't know how, just the right place at the right time, uh, the yeah. right connections, but... You neither if, of us want to use the word luck, but if we did, yeah. it, it, you'd call it luck. But if you're real, because I even remember my uncle one time, because my uncle wrote his probably most famous novel had 80 rejections. Wow. Okay, and then it came out, a novel called Wittgenstein's Mistress, and it's hailed as a masterpiece. But even then, it never sold a lot. It never, it never sold. And I can still remember him telling me, he goes, I've got this idea for this broad, wide novel, but I'm going to get into the subjectivism, and it's going to kill me. In the sense that he knew it would be so he very knew hard. It. Yeah, he knew, and yet he did it anyway. Oh, I've got a number of his novels, and they are no scene, no summary, no plot. It's pure, ultimate postmodern, ultimate, and yet somehow he pulls it off. Yeah. And the novels have been hailed. People, this is great stuff, but most people don't read them. Yeah, they've most been hailed; people, they just haven't been purchased. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it was very. Every now and then, when I go into a bookstore. And I haven't done it in a while because I haven't been there. But I'd look on the shelf to see, and I haven't seen any of his books there for yeah, years. That's yeah. a little painful. Uh, but, yeah, you know, sure. It's, but when you got the writing bug in you, you don't care. I say you don't care. You just got to write what's in you. Yeah, yeah. You write what's in you, and if it sells, great. You know, if you got a way to earn a living, great. And if you can write and sell and earn and make money, Great, yeah. you know, but if you got this thing in you, you just got to do it. So you were writing a novel that was consuming you. It was the big thing. Did you imagine then, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Or was it just a novel? Was this a, a, a Oh, no, I knew project? I was going to write novels for the rest of okay. my life. Yeah. Oh, that was my intention. Was whatever it. happened with this, whatever happened with this one, I mean, I was going to start another one, you know. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, I was determined. Was, that's the only thing I liked doing. Yeah. The only thing I had any real talent for. And I poured myself into it, poured myself into it. And, and, uh, and it was a God to me. Yeah. And that's sort of where this, everything wound up. It was a God to me. And, and the funny thing is, too, John, when I tell the whole story, what happened after I got, got rid of it, for two years, I couldn't tell that without a pain. Sure. And then one day it hit me, wow, this doesn't hurt me anymore. Well, there are going to be people who are wondering what you mean by yeah. I got rid of yeah. it. So what did you do with this novel? Well, the bottom line, and this is a whole long spiel, I, I was on a, in the midst of all the writing, I was always somewhat of a seeker. I thought about it the other day when I talked to some of my old friends. and They said, well, Cliff, the one thing we remember you as, you were a seeker. 
And I did an incredible amount of traveling when I was young. Oh, yeah? Oh, I just traveled all over. A- abroad? You went overseas? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. When I was 17 years old, I, I saved up my money from high school. I had enough money. I went over to Europe with a friend of mine. I ditched him. I ditched him after two weeks. I just, he was bugging me. I'd rather be alone. So I wandered around. I never saw him again. And you were 17 wandering around. He was 18. Yeah, I was 17. I'm wandering around Europe, 17. It was great. It was fine. I didn't have any problems. And then I came back. I went to school for two years, saved some money, and went back and lived overseas in Europe and worked over there. Then I went back, finished college, and went over to Europe again and wound up in Israel. And I did a lot. of. And somebody once said to me once, they said, what are you looking for? And I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think I was a seeker, but I really was a seeker for truth. Yeah. And what was funny was I, I grew up a very postmodern. And, you know, you got your truth and that's your truth. I got mine. And I was about 21 years old. And I tell the story. I was in a pizza parlor in Gainesville, Florida, and I was eating a pizza and I was reading a philosopher, and the philosopher said something that kicked into my mind that, hey, there has, there's, some, there's a pizza on the table. Something explained the pizza. Sure. Okay, something somewhere out there, you know, maybe nobody can know where the pizza came from or whatever, but somewhere there was an answer for it. And then it hit me. There's the universe. There's the reality. There's something here. Maybe it's all an illusion. Maybe we're all in the matrix. And that's fine. That, that would be the truth. But it hit me that there had to be a truth. And for some reason, I remember thinking to myself, if it were humanly possible, because my realization that truth had to exist is a complete, you know, the fancy word ontology. Sure. There's an on top, there's something here. Yep. But that's a totally separate thing from another fancy word, epistemology. Sure. My knowledge the theory of, it. of knowledge, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the fact that it was there was a totally separate question from whether I could know what it was. And I realized I might not ever know what it was. But I thought to myself, if I could know what it was, I wanted to know it. I didn't care where it led me, what it cost me, what I had to suffer what I had to give up. Well, it was going to lead you, and it was going to cost you. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, you understand what I yeah. mean by that, but, but in the immediate term, it was going to cost you. So how do you find yourself peering into a Bible and saying, I think this might be the revelation well, of what's true? that gets to be... I, my, I had a very... I was, I, I was a born-again believer before I even knew I was a sinner. Okay, mm. I was born, and the bottom line was you asked about the novel. That novel was my God. Okay, and then I had had some amazing experiences. Just and when I tell my story, people look at me like they almost can't. But they think I'm, some people have accused me of lying. Mm. I've had people say that. That got me open to that there was there was something out there. For example, okay. oh well, maybe we catch that the next. Because to try to explain that. Oh, it's just that big, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I, you asked me that because I just need a little bit more time for that. But I had these things that opened me. And the bottom line was I came home to my room one night to work on this novel. I had put two and a half years of my life in the novel. It meant more to me than life itself. And I remember 
I was having these spiritual experiences. I was open to something spiritual. I sat there, and right before I started to work, I closed my eyes and I uttered a little prayer. I didn't know who I was praying to, whatever. I just And in the back of... See, See, the devil had me. I was having these occult experiences. Uh-huh. I was in the occult, and I even started writing about the occult. So Satan had me. And then somehow in the back and forth of the great controversy, that little prayer was all the opening God needed me. And at that moment, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ came to me in the room. And in that instant, he showed me exact. I knew exactly who he was and what he wanted. And he said, Cliff, you've been playing with me long enough. If you want me tonight, burn your novel. Because he showed me that that novel was my God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I didn't know that Bible text. I didn't know, I didn't know if Moses was in the New Testament or the Old Testament. That's how biblical illiterate I was. But I knew I met God that night. And he showed me instantly, instantly, this novel was my God. And I just knew I can't do both. I can't do both. And it was totally free choice. Two things came through to me that night. And I can wax eloquent for hours on why, philosophically, why free will is impossible. Okay, even though I believe it, because sure. my faith is, makes no sense without it. And plus, that night, I knew it was totally my free choice. I, I mean, I knew it was just clear to me. And the other thing, too, which is very spooky to me, I knew that if I don't do it now, I'll never have this opportunity again. Sure. Yeah. But how did I know that? I mean, I was having occult experiences. I took the God-given gift that God had given to me. That's a little redundant. But I started writing about my occult experience. I started weaving it into the novel. So mm. in the bottom line, I could have spent the past 40 years writing for the other guy for the other side, instead of for the Lord. And had I been doing that, I wouldn't have gotten out. No, no, no. And you felt that at that time. You felt like this is now or never. Yeah, for whatever reason. I mean, didn't know nothing. I didn't even know I said, I didn't even know I was a sinner. But I knew if this is, if I don't do this now, I'll never have the other, another opportunity. There's more, there's more. We got to hear the more. We've got to hear, we've got to hear the more. And we want to hear about the more. There's plenty more. Don't go too far. I'll be back in just a moment with more with Clifford Goldstein. Hello, I'm Dr. David DeRose, a specialist in internal medicine and preventive medicine. And I've been surprised over the years in working with patients and studying the medical research literature just how powerful hemorrheology is when it comes to health. You may be wondering, what is hemorrheology? Well, I call it the Methuselah Factor, and that's the title of my book. The Methuselah Factor really helps you connect with things that can help your blood be more fluid. You say, why is that important? It's important because it can help you decrease your risk of a stroke or a heart attack, even lower your risk of cancer. But it's a whole lot more than just preventing killer diseases. If you improve your blood fluidity, your mind will work better, you'll perform physically better, and you'll decrease your risk of dementia. So don't hesitate. Dive into the Methuselah Factor. Make a difference in your life and the life of those that you love. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. 
Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study Guides online. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. You'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. itiswritten.study. Go further. itiswritten.study. If you enjoy coloring, then you are going to love the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from My Place with Jesus. The Buried Treasure Coloring Book has more than just pictures to color. You'll also enjoy activity pages, each accompanied by their very own audio story. Mr. Dixon came across a small, well-weeded rice patch out in the middle of a field. Get ahead of a rainy day or a relaxing evening as a family and order the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from It Is Written. Welcome back to Conversations. My guest is Clifford Goldstein, who today is a writer, a prolific writer, and an author, an influential author. But a few years ago, you took a novel that you've been writing for two and a half years. Forty years, yeah. Forty years. Placed it in a fireplace. Hot, on a little two-burner hot plate. Set fire to it. Burned it, yeah. And people got to remember, too, I've been telling the story for decades, and I got to let the... I told it once... Even locally, and someone said to the teacher, came up to me later and said, the kid said, well, what was the big deal? Didn't he have it stored in the cloud? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hadn't you backed it up? Yeah, it was, I, I was using a manual typewriter. Yeah. We were 25 years. What was the big deal? It was burning his novel. Did he have it in the cloud? You know? you know, I'm reminded of Abraham. God says, kill your son. He doesn't quite understand this, but okay, I'm going to go and do it. Figured God would be able to raise him up. And yeah. here you're hearing from God, burn this novel. Yeah. So yeah. what was what in your mind? You you you're about to set fire to it. What what happens after it's gone? I mean, this is where your life is going. I had no idea. Is that so? I mean, I when I burned that novel that night. I mean, I was born again. But if if you would have said to me that night, Cliff, you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Right, right. It was just not. A, in other words, I all I knew was I met God and Jesus, and I had to burn the novel. And and you know, in in one sense, it was fortunate. There's a fancy philosophical phrase you've probably heard of it, tabula rasa. Mm-hmm. I was a blank slate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I knew almost nothing about Christian theology, Christian law. I mean, I knew nothing, and so. I was wide open to to learn the truths that I learned. I didn't have years of false That's teaching. Right. You didn't have a lot of unlearning to do. Yeah, oh, no. Hey, but what that means also is that you could be influenced in any direction. Oh. You didn't have any parameters oh, to keep I knew you nothing. this way. Oh, or that I was way. involved. I, I, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was total. I was, but I had all this zeal. Yeah, yeah. And the next thing, people who knew me. Knew me. There's Cliff Goldston running around with the Bible, talking about Jesus, and people were shocked. Were shocked. In fact, I used to harangue Christians. There used to be this hellfire and brimstone preacher. His name is Jed Smock, and he used to come to the University of Florida at Gainesville, and he'd stand out there in a circle, and he'd be preaching, and there'd be students around him and heckling him. And I used to get in the center of the circle. And I'd get on his heels, I'd curse him, I'd curse his Bible, I'd, you know, and, and he was a charismatic. Yeah. And he'd put hands on my head and speak in tongues, 
cast demons out of me. And I'd start drooling and writhing just for the fun of it. And it got so bad, my friends eventually nicknamed me Heckle. I was nicknamed Heckle. But then one day, he came back, and I got next to him in the crowd and witnessed to the students about my belief in Jesus. There's a turnaround. I'm interested to know why you bothered to heckle a guy when when you didn't have any strong religious leanings well, of your own. Well, you know, he had said to me something one time. He had said to me something. You who scream the loudest are fighting the hardest. Mm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very funny because there was another Jewish guy who used to go out and harangue him with me. And he ended up becoming a believer too. Oh, really? You know, so I think there was... The Holy Spirit was drawing me, even before I had any idea. Sure. Because again, I, I was a, it goes back, I was a seeker for truth. It hit me that truth had to exist. Yeah, and yeah. for some reason, I don't like to use the word sacred, because that connotes too much, denotes too much the idea of something religious. It was almost a, almost a duty Sure. A secular duty. Yeah. Truth exists. You need to go to try to find a way to find it if you can. And I never ended up thinking it would be Jesus. So how did you find Jesus then? If Jesus was the truth you found, Jesus well, was the truth you I knew you it found. was him who came to me that night. Okay. That night. I mean, there was, I knew it was Jesus. So where did you start? Well, I had met... Here's a funny... Okay. Here's something that some of your readers will... Listeners will appreciate. I started having occult experiences, okay? And I'm thinking, wow, maybe the occult, maybe spiritualism is where the truth is Mm -hmm. that I'm looking for. And so I one day walk over to um, the library at the University of Florida. Even though I wasn't in school, I could still go into the library. And I'm going to get a book on the occult. Well, as we talked earlier, I was a starving writer, and I needed a job. And, you know, and, and I did not like vegetarians, okay? I didn't like Christians, and I didn't like vegetarians, okay? And there was a health food store. And I was desperate enough to thought, oh, what will the man give in exchange for his soul? I'm going to hang around a bunch of tofu-eating veggie people. But I needed a job. So I go to this health food store and I knock on the door. It was closed. And, this, and I had met him the day before under a funny circumstance. And this little guy comes out and we start talking. And I said to him something about my occult stuff. And he says, what? And he pulls me in the health food store and he locks the door. And we sit down and he starts talking to me. And I'm telling him about my occult, his astral projections and all that. And he starts warning me about the devil. Well, the devil, I mean, telling me the devil, you might as well told me that Santa Claus wouldn't come down the chimney on Christmas if I'm a bad boy. Right. You know, I mean, it was just, you, you know, the devil, sure. you, you know, in that mind frame, are you yeah. kidding me? And anyway, before I leave, he says, read this book. And he hands me a book. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I'm a, as a writer, I'm a reader. I mean, I just read, read to this day. I just read, read. Uh, that's all I do. I have almost no hobbies. I just read. I read and write. So he gives me the book, and I walk over to the library, and I get a book on the occult. Okay, 
and I sit down in the library. First time in my life, I sit there, and I'm read, I read the first chapter of the occult book, and I practice the first technique. And I've, sometimes I'm hesitant. My wife tells me, don't tell what you did. But maybe people ought to know. But the first technique they tell you is stare at a point in the back of your head. Okay, that's all they... T- but anyway, I'm sitting there, so I'm doing that. And then I'm done, because I said I was having these occult experiences. I mean, they're real. My interpretation of them was wrong, but but I'm thinking maybe this is the truth that I'm looking for. Okay? Sure. Because it was... You have one or two astral projections, and you know yeah. reality is more than just what they taught you in high school sure. physics, okay? Mm-hmm. But anyway, to make a long story short, I've got the occult book in one hand for the first time in my life, and I'm going to put it back on the shelf. And literally, in my other hand, for the first time in my life, I got the book the guy handed me in the health food store. Cult book in one hand, The Great Controversy by Ellen White in another. And I was clueless. I was clueless as to what was going on. And I read... I read the first couple chapters of The Great Conifer. I was enjoying it and so on. Hadn't got to the spiritual and stuff yet. And then it was two nights later when the Lord came to me and told me to burn my novel. You know, and I, when I gave my heart to Jesus that night, those occult experiences didn't come back. Mm, that, yeah, that's interesting. Didn't come back. But, ooh, here I cult book and what in it. Oh, my God. And that's the great controversy playing oh, out. Oh, I was living right it. Right there. And I was, I was totally oblivious, totally oblivious to what happened. But you asked earlier about the events that happened that got me, oh, you know, yeah. believe, okay, I, again, I can't go through all the details, but I'll tell you this main thing. I had been living overseas, living in Israel, lived on a kibbutz in Israel, and then I was in Europe, and I was just having problems. My things were just kind of spiraling down for me. And I still remember I was in Paris. And I even remember the spot where I was because Mm. my wife has been hearing me tell the story for decades. And we were in Paris a number of years ago. And I said, this is right where I was standing when I had this moment. It was one of these moments where I, whether I shook a fist up in the air or not, I said, God, if you're there, I need a sign. And little did I know that what does Scripture say? Jews, Greeks seek for wisdom. Jews seek for a sign. For I, mean, a I sign. knew nothing about Isn't that. that. I, mean, I knew nothing. And I'm sitting there uh, totally oblivious to the Bible. Yeah. And I said, God, if you're there, I need a sign. Otherwise, I will never believe ever. Okay. And with that, I left. And I went back to Israel. And I had met, and I had met these Christians there earlier, and I told them, I said, well, I asked God for a sign. If God is there, and someone said, if you ask, God will reveal himself to you. All right, fine. Well, two days later, I meet, I go to the, the main office in Tel Aviv to get assigned to a new kibbutz. And I go into the office, and there's a woman at the desk, and there's a boy sitting ahead of me. And I'm waiting my turn, And I look over on the desk, and I see a sheet of paper. And it has my name on it, Clifford Goldstein. And so I said to the woman, I I said, excuse me, 
how did you know I was coming? And she says, I don't know, who are you? And I said, Clifford Goldstein. And the boy who's there, he jumps up and says, no, that's my paper. My name is Clifford Goldstein. Uh. Okay, now, sure, Clifford Goldstein's not the most common name in the world. But look, I was in Tel Aviv, okay? And then I said, Cliff, where are you from? And he said, Miami Beach. And I grew up in Miami Beach. In fact, when I told my mother the story later, she said, when we, when I was a kid, his doctor bills used to come to my house. Okay? Oh, really? Said he was there to get assigned to a kibbutz. And I said, Cliff, have I got the kibbutz for you? You go to my old kibbutz and tell him your name is Clifford Goldstein and you're from Miami Beach and see what happens. Okay. So he goes to the kibbutz. Well, about two weeks later, I'm not getting it together. I'm going to go home, but I'll go back to the kibbutz for a visit. And of all the different rooms they put volunteers in, Clifford Goldstein was in the same room that I had been in when I had left the kibbutz months earlier. And there were two beds in the room. And he was sleeping in the same bed that I had been in. (laughs) So he's sitting on his bed, and I'm sitting at the end of the bed. And we're laughing. It's a little uncanny. I don't think that, you know, we don't think that much of it. Now, as I said, I was a writer. Okay, and I did a lot of reading. And when I left the kibbutz, I had a whole bunch of books that I left on the bookshelf over my bed. And there was one book in particular, a book of poetry by a woman named Sylvia Plath that, sure. that so impacted me. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I tell the story to friends who were lived on the kibbutz, I said, remember, I used to make you sit there and listen to me read her poems, whether you wanted to yeah, or not. Yeah. I mean, the stuff just devastated me. Nothing I had read had impacted me more. And I look up over the bookshelf and I see a number of my old books. And I said, Cliff, you like my books? And he says, what are you talking about? He said, those are all my books. Oh, you're kidding. And I said, no way. And I stood up and I went right for the Sylvia Plath book. Same author, same everything, but it wasn't my book. It was his book. And I thought, What kind of dork reads this stuff other than me? And I said, Cliff, are you a writer? And he says, I'm thinking of becoming a writer, and I came to Israel to write, which is what I was doing. Then on top of it, when I was on the kibbutz, I had a blonde Danish girlfriend. Her name was Tina. We're talking, and as we're talking, this girl walks into the room. I never saw her before. It was his girlfriend. She's blonde. She's from Denmark. And her name is? And her name was Tina. No way. Okay, yeah, I'm telling you, this is exactly. And then one of the, I'll never forget. See, the Christians, I knew these Christians there. They were there. And one of them said to me, i never forget his words to me. He looked at me. he, He was just incredulous. And he says, Cliff, you're asking God for signs. He says, man, what more do you want? The Lord is calling you by name. Yeah. And, I mean, at that point, when he said that to me, I didn't know. I remember standing there, and I'm thinking about this. And I'm trying to process it, and I'm thinking, I asked for a sign. And I realized this can't be a coincidence, okay? And if it's not a coincidence, it was like for the first time, excuse me, I kind of look up in the sky with a little bit of fear and a little bit of reverence, okay? Because I know. But anyway, the bottom line was these Christians, and I used to harangue and harass them too, they took me down to the Jordan River 
which was just near the kibbutz. They baptized me. They gave me a Bible, and I come back to America. But really, I was no more born again than a corpse. Sure. Okay? I mean, I read my, I, they gave me the Bible, but, you know, I reading the Bible, if you're not into it, I couldn't get past the talking snake story, sure. you know, yeah. and so on. It took, but that was the background, and it took about a month later for the Lord came to me in the room, told me to burn my novel. When I burned the novel, that was the night I became a born-again believer. Mm. Okay? And it was the people in the health food store were the, really the first Christian contacts that I had. And I studied with them in the store. And it was funny, too, because about, oh, I, maybe a month later, I'm standing in front of the health food store getting ready to cross the street, and a car drives by. And who do you think's in the car? <laughs> Clifford no Goldstein. Way. Clifford Goldstein, <laughs> the last time I saw him, was in the Galilee. And to this day, to this day, I could still see the stunned look, the stunned look on his face. And I think I've tracked him down. He's out in L.A. I've tried to get in touch with him. He just ignored me and so on but that got my attention that yeah. got my attention and but even then that helped open me up to god intellectually yeah but i had to be born again i had to be broken i had to be broke when i burned that novel i had nothing. Mm, mm, mm. I had nothing. I poured everything in it when all oh, people were saying, oh, we knew you couldn't do it, you know, and, and the devil would throw stuff. In fact, it was very funny because the night that the Lord told me to burn the novel, it was going better than it had ever been going. And I wondered, of all the nights, why this? And then I, and a little while later, the devil hit me. Oh, you were afraid you couldn't do it. And I stopped and I said, no, no, no. Had I had the slightest doubt about me writing that novel, that night, boom, it would have been, the devil would have had a hook on me. Mm, but I'm mm, thinking, mm. no, no, no. I burned the novel when, in a sense, when the nets were filled. Right. That, and, and that's a very important lesson here. I'm going to ask you this very quickly. Do you remember the story you wrote well? And was it any good? Oh, yeah, I remember the story. All right. Was well, any good? How do you mean good? Was there anything? It I mean, was ultimately a story about f family. Do you look back and say, that might really have flown? No, no. I, no. I, oh, I shudder. <laughs> I shudder to think what would have happened had I not burned that novel. Really? Oh, and I look now, I look back now. Suppose I had written it, and suppose it made me rich. And suppose it made me famous. The Hebrew word, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Hevel, hevelin, kol, hevelin. Vanity of vanities. It meant nothing. Sure. It means, and I, I look to this day at some of these great novels and, oh, oh, no. No, I have never been sorry. Mm. Woo! Mm. So. Yeah, those are good words. Yeah. I've, I've never been sorry. More good words in a moment. I'll be back with more Ed, from Cliff Goldstein. Just a second. He's the strongest man who ever lived, but he's defined today as much by his weakness as by his strength. 
called by God to deliver his people in a time of great apostasy, Samson was gifted with superhuman strength. But Samson's weaknesses were his undoing. Don't miss Great Characters of the Bible, the story of Samson. Learn how you can avoid the mistakes Samson made. Discover how your weaknesses do not have to define your life. And celebrate the goodness of a God who can use anyone for His glory. Great Characters of the Bible, the story of Samson, a story of opportunity, hope, and the goodness of God. Great Characters of the Bible, Samson. Watch now on It Is Written TV. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Welcome back to Conversations. Uh, my guest is Cliff Goldstein. So Cliff, you, you, you burn the novel. You become a Christian. I used to work in radio, you know, and, and I decided I can't do that anymore. I've got to get out. I'm done. So I gave my life to Jesus. No more radio. There was, there was the temptation. Maybe you can still do that. Mm, I don't yeah. know. No, not possible. Yeah. But the thought came to my mind, ah, can you do Christian radio? So I, I, I toyed with that idea. It wasn't that straightforward. You're not going to be a novelist now, but somewhere back there you had to be thinking, can I write for Jesus? Well, when I burned that novel that night, I died to it. I realized I might not ever write again. Okay? I mean, I just, it was that much of a hole on me. And I was okay with it. Yeah. I had no idea what I, but that's what it took. That was okay. And for about a year and a half, I didn't do any writing. Then one day, a door opened up for me to write an article. And it was funny because I mentioned I didn't like vegetarians. And the first article I wrote and published was on the advantages of vegetarians. Oh. And I hadn't stopped writing since yeah. then. And sometimes when I tell the story, particularly with young people, I stress that. You know, I stress, you know, okay, you, I died to it, but in the Lord's timing, he gave it back, and that's all I've been doing yeah. ever since, is writing ever since. And it's not a God to me. I love it. It's what I do. It's how I earn a living. But it's, it's oh, it's totally different now. So, yeah. Yeah. You began to write Christian books. What 